A lot of our head chefs have started them when they were younger. For me, it's, it's a chance to open a few people's eyes up and mentor them and really develop these great leaders that are going to take Applejack into the future. So it's, yeah, it's incredibly exciting. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Feeding large groups of people is always a challenge. Throw in amazing dining rooms and quality food, and the task becomes even harder. But there are many that carve careers in hospitality that have learnt the art of feeding large groups of people. Patrick Friesen is the head of culinary of Applejack Hospitality. Patrick, how are you? I'm very well. Yourself? I'm good. You've you've got a, an amazing career at venues that are, are quite large, that are used to big numbers, but delivering a, a sort of high-quality high product. What, what's it been like trying to manage so many people that maintain those high standards? Oh, that's a tough question. I think... <laughs> I think it's been good. Um, in in my life, I've done all sorts of different size venues, um, but I learned at one point that if you want to be a big dog, you have to do be able to do big volume. And so, part of that was just I just decided that that's what I was going to do, and to get good at that meant um, really get, getting good at understanding people and working with people and leading and mentoring people. And so I I put a lot of emphasis and effort into doing just that. I want to get into sort of what you're doing with the Applejack Hospitality Group shortly, but give us us an idea of the scale and the size of the group. Uh, Applejack is a, I'd say it's a boutique hospitality group. We've got five venues um, varying in sizes from a pub being the Foresters that can have probably three or 400 people in it. Um, to Bob and Tone that seats 150, to um, a small venue like The Botanist, which sits about 65. So it, it varies. Um, what I really like about it is that you get to kind of do a few different cuisines and a few different styles all within the same role. What's it like managing those different venues with different offerings? Are there things that are similar that you can do across the board or do you have to treat them all quite differently? Um, I think you treat them differently just because there's different people working in all of them. Um, so it's trying to kind of get the best out of the team that it's in each venue. But in saying that, um, for instance, they all do a version of – three of the venues do a version of a crispy fried cauliflower. And so – <laughs> you go to the suppliers and, and with the current state of hospitality, you show them how you want it cut and now they prep it for all three venues. You mentioned uh, given the state of hospitality yeah. and getting uh, someone else to prep a certain product. Has, has that, those relationships changed for you and the way that kitchens operate and connect with the those supplying the products to them? Oh, 100%. I think um, over the last couple of years, Obviously, everything's changed, um, and I've been vocal about it in the past. But I find a lot of um, a lot of others that are in the industry complain a lot about how things have changed because um, some things obviously aren't the same. But I think if you change the way you play the game, there's obviously still money to be made and, and still gains to be had. And so for me, uh, I've really just tried to to go with the flow and and find ways to 
to to change to to keep up. So one thing being um, staffing is really hard to come by, and and staffing is really expensive as compared to when we were starting out. And so the best way to deal with that is is to outsource kind of as much as you can. And so instead of having apprentices, we now have suppliers who have um, heaps of machinery and equipment, and they've got their own staff to to do all the prep. And so um, you still treat them as you would your own commie chef, and you you hold them to the same standard and level that you, you normally would expect. But now, instead of if my guy screws it up, I have to throw it in the bin or the compost. If they screw it up, well, then they just send me another one. Wow. What what sort of um, products and changes have you seen in kitchens um, because of this shift? Um, all sorts. But I think it's a, it's a lot of it's the simple stuff. It's getting everything in portion where we used to break things down. Even when you look at it from the supplier's standpoint, the butchers get stuff in cartons from the abattoir and maybe they put it through machine to portion it or some stuff they do by hand. But a lot's changed from in the old days when you used to get in whole animals and break them down. The small venues, of course, still still do it, but um, it's becoming less achievable just from a, a, a cost standpoint. When did you first get interested in food? What, what sort of role did that play when you were young for you? Uh, so I grew up in a really um, conservative Mennonite community um, in rural Canada. I grew up in a town of 500 um, where everyone was kind of the same. Um, when I went to high school, I think we had two Asian girls and maybe one black kid. Um, otherwise, everyone was pretty well from um, – the same religious background and same cultural background. Um, so growing up, the food we ate was pretty plain. Um, but in saying that, it still was delicious. But we ate lots of potatoes, lots of pork. But we did. We really only ate fish if you caught it yourself. Um, just I grew up in quite a landlocked part of the country, so you didn't get stuff really from the coast, or, or else you got frozen salmon fillets or something um so then i always just liked eating <laughs> and, and i always wanted tastier things so as i grew up i i spent a lot of the time in the kitchen trying to make things taste better than than they did um and so then over time i just wanted to see more so i i started cooking um kind of as a backup plan to pay my way through uni um but then i found as i sat in microbiology i was spending more time writing a menu than i was writing notes and so i figured well maybe there's something in this uh, i should give it a shot and from a young age i i always got i was lucky and i got really good opportunities and so i just figured well the opportunities keep coming let's keep having a crack Tell us about your first foray in a, into um, food service and hospitality. Um, what was it like for you stepping into a commercial kitchen for the first time? Oh, it was, it was a push. I, I started working for a Polish guy named Jeff Malkowski uh, in a golf course and country club called Corey Oaks. Um, 
which is was probably a 20-minute drive from my house where I grew up. It also is kind of in the middle of nowhere, but a really beautiful golf course. Um, had 27 holes. It's one of the premier golf courses in the province. Um, so I started working there in the kitchen. I started doing breakfast. And kind of straight off the hop, the, the chef told me, there already is someone doing breakfast, but if you can be better than her, you can, you can do it. <laughs> and so I just pushed and I, I quickly learned how to do it. Um, also part of that job was, it, this was the old school way where you, you worked a million hours and you spent a lot of time drinking beers while you were at work. And, and, uh, yeah, so it was, it was pretty, it was a good experience, but it was, it was definitely different to how we do it nowadays. Like on my, on my second day, the, the head chef asked me if I'd ever shotgunned a beer before. And as, as a, as a Mennonite boy growing up in a small country town, uh, I think I had tried it once before, but I was also 17 and I went, so I told him that. And the next day he invited me upstairs to the attic with, with a keyhole cut in the bottom of a, Budweiser, and we we made quick work of it. <laughs> Tell us about those first few years. What, what was the um, main influence on you that helped set a path for you as a chef? Oh, I think this fellow Jeff that I worked for um, was pretty influential on me. He uh, he had this mentality that that your recipes were your secrets, and that was where your worth was held. A bit different to my own philosophy, but. Um, in part of that, all of the recipes we had in the kitchen were just uh, ingredient lists. And so it was up to you to be able to cook by taste and feel and be able to make all the things in a consistent manner. Um, also, Jeff was just a really passionate guy. And so we would spend a lot of time when we were at work going to other restaurants or trying other stuff. And uh, he really opened my eyes to a lot of different cuisines that I hadn't really explored um, growing up in country town. And so I would say that he was he was pretty influential. He also, like if you'd ask him a question, oh, why do we do it like this? Uh, he'd only ever give you 10% of the answer, but he would force you to go home and, and buy a book or read a book and figure it out in yourself. Um, and then and then he'd demand the answer back in a, in a couple of days. And so you'd have to come back and tell him what you learned and why you were doing it the way you were. So I think that was, um, yeah, he was pretty good at that. Given that you were on a path to go through university and veered towards hospitality, what did, what did your family think about that shift? Oh, uh, um, poorly. They, they, I grew up with a dad who was a, a grade six educator most of his life. And my mum was a nurse um, and then did a career change um, in her 40s to become, she did a master's in education. Um, so she was teaching professors how to teach more effectively at universities. So both of them were, were very focused on education um, <laughs> and I was not. So, and also growing up where I did, um, the opportunities were for people with university degrees. And by not doing that, I guess they probably knew that the opportunities wouldn't be there 
And I guess I also noticed that early on um, and that a career in hospitality back home is, isn't the best option, to be honest. Um, the pay is terrible. The hours are poor. Um, it's definitely not the same as Australia. And, and also there's, there's less of a cultural significance. And so, um, yeah, it was pretty frowned upon by my family and it took a number of years before they, they really thought it was a good idea. (laughs) What led to a move to Australia? Um, I, I did four summers at a golf course. Um, by the third summer I was the head chef. Um, I worked in kind of all the best restaurants that Winnipeg had to offer. And I knew that there was more out there. So it was 2009. I did a trip to New York um, to eat at a bunch of three Michelin star restaurants by myself. uh, Cause I wanted to know what, what was the best, you know? Um, And then while I was there, I was trying to find a job and get sponsored. It's pretty hard for Canadians to get visas for the States. Um, but because it was the GFC, no one was hiring. Everyone was just laying off people. And so Australia was kind of my backup plan. I had a few other friends that were planning to come backpacking. And I, on a whim, decided, well, I'll apply for a visa too. And, of course, that came through easily. And so then in a winter of uh, – we had a week of minus 40. And I just thought, why do we still – why do I live here? <laughs> and so I booked a plane ticket to Australia because I had the visa. I knew I could speak the language and that um, there was a culture of, of good food. And, and yeah, never, never went back. Tell us about when you first, uh, first arrived and immersed yourself into the um, restaurant dining landscape. What did you think of the offering here? Oh, first, I was in Brisbane, and it, and it still was pretty challenging to find a job uh, at that time. Um, and, and so after it took me kind of two months to find a gig. And when I did, it was at a average place doing fish and chips, but it was, it was, I had to feed myself and pay for rent. So I did it. Um, a few months in, I saved up enough cash and moved to Sydney. Uh, at which point I got a job working for Guillaume at the opera house. Um, and yeah, I just, I just thought it was great. <laughs> Um, being part of that, that team, it was a pretty tough time. Um, but in saying that we spent a lot of time going out to eat at different restaurants. It was my intro, my first day they introduced me to golden century and started my love affair with Chinese food. And yeah, so, and Sydney was, was different in those days. In those days you had fine dining and cheap places and not much in the middle. And in the 10 years since there's really been a big shift in the dining culture. The influence of Asia is evident in uh, your career in Australia. What, what was your knowledge prior to that in, in that sort of cookery? And um, was there a shift where you really wanted to go down that path? Um, when I finished working for Guillaume, um, that was a pretty challenging time. It was, it was, being having a, a boss that bullied you and threw pots and um, acted like a child um, and working a hundred hour weeks. Uh, I, I knew that I wanted to make a change and I didn't know what was next. So I went and did a trial for Dan and Jow at Miss G's 
and I did a trial at Key. And I thought to myself, do I want to go work for, um, I don't know, one of one of the legends being Peter Gilmore and, and try and work my way up through that system? Or do I want to be on the cusp of what's really cool and happening? And I just, I could feel a shift in the air and I could feel that, there's something special at Miss G's. And so um, given both those options, I, I chose to work with Dan and Zhao, and that was the best decision I ever made. Take us into the kitchen of Miss G's. Um, do you have any stories of that time and the influence that it had on you? Oh, I think we just had a really um, – we had a great team in those days. Um, like just the talent of, of Dan Hong and Zhao Yu – that was pretty incredible for the both of them to be working together. Um, Paul Donnelly, who now does Chinese Tuxedo, was part of that team. Um, Isu Lee was one of our chefs that ended up working for us. He's he's a big shot in Paris these days. Um, TK, who went to open Flavortown in Seoul. Katie Choi, who's who's worked at everywhere in Sydney. Everyone knows her as the legend who... They all wish that she worked for for them, but she never wants to work. <laughs> um, no, it was a really incredible time. And it was a small team. There was only ever seven of us in the kitchen, plus a couple of kitchen hands. Um, it was really tight. You, you're working on top of each other. Uh, but we all really were competitive and held, held each other to account and really pushed each other. And you could just – it was like one of these places where anything – kind of worked and everybody liked everything so we got away with doing some weird shit um like we did a halloween dinner and and i, I don't know I, I tried to make the menu sound pretty gross because it was halloween but we did ant larvae larp which is like a traditional kind of isan style larp um but the first table that sat down and we served it in a takeaway box in a paper bag and that's how it came to the table. And the first table sat down and they read it and they saw it and they went, nah, this isn't for us. And just left. And we went, you know, you've already paid. Like, you, you may as well try something. And they went, nah, we're out of here. <laughs> but the other hundred people that came had a good time. And, like, it was just the environment where you could push the boundaries a bit and um, creatively. And everything kind of just seemed to stick. There was influences for everywhere from everywhere with the cuisine at Miss G's. Is there, are there any dishes or um, techniques that you can share with us from that time that sort of epitomise your time there? I think that the best thing I did there, we used to do this pork knuckle bosam. Um, so like Korean style lettuce wraps with, with crispy pork hock. That was probably the the best selling dish that I ever put on there. Um and we'd brine it, we'd cook it overnight, and then you'd deep fry the whole thing so it would just be super crispy. But as soon as you put a knife into it, it just fell apart. We used to sell hundreds of them. Um, but I think Miss G's was kind of a cool place because it depended on the interest of the head chef at the time. So when all of Dan's dishes were more Vietnamese-leaning, whereas Zhao's were more Taiwanese, and so... Um, they were like distinctly different, but everything kind of fit together. And then I think when I took over, most of the team was pretty Korean. And so I probably lent more to doing Chinese and Korean dishes. 
But then when Paul Donnelly took over for me, he he made it very Thai and Japanese because that was where he, his interest lay. Um, and now with Matt, I think it's kind of gone a bit more Korean again. So it's been a little bit all over the shop, but um, I was just influenced by who was there at the time. Ms. G's was the start of a long relationship with Mary Vale that you had with multiple venues, Queen Chow and Papi Chula. Um, tell, tell us about those restaurants and that, and that period of time for you. Well, I did Miss G's for a couple of years as the head chef, uh, at which point I heard they were opening a thing in Manly. I heard it was going to be American barbecue. I had a fascination with American barbecue. And so I, I put my hand up to do it. Um, it was a, it was a, we were kind of going on the high of anything works. And so we probably went a little bit too out there with some stuff. (laughs) Um, and I think a lot of people were kind of confused as to what Poppy Chulo was. Um, but I still think that in doing it, we, we made some pretty delicious food. Um, but it's a challenging place working in Manly. Um, it's, it's incredibly seasonal. It's a challenge to find staff. Um, the locals are very demanding. And so it, it was a big change going from Potts Point to working there. Queen Chow also um, was a big part of your your history. Um, and taking over a hotel in Enmore as well, what was it like bringing um, that pub to life? That was a pretty cool opportunity. Justin um, is a genius in the sense that he, he bases some of his decisions around who he's going to put in places or what concepts. It's a lot based around the people. So, um, I had done work in progress and we did this funny little pop-up where it was like wonton soup and Korean fried chicken. Like it kind of made no sense, but it was a, a bit of fun. It was meant to be like a one weekend pop-up, but then because the head chef who was running that venue had resigned the week before, they just decided to do it for six months. Um, Justin was in there one day and it was pumping like a Friday lunch and went, why don't we do this, but bigger? And so the next week, um, we were in a meeting with Justin at, at the Queen Vic. And he goes, what do you think of this pub? I just bought it. <laughs> and he said, what do you guys want to do? And so uh, I wrote three concepts, uh, three menus, and I sent them through. And I wrote a Chinese one that I put not that much effort into. And they went, that's the one. That's what we're doing. Um. And so it just it just went from there. And they gave us some really incredible opportunities. Like I, I had some background and I had learned a lot from working, especially with Zhao, Um and just eating out a ton and doing heaps of research. Um, but I, I convinced them that we needed to go to Hong Kong on, on an eating trip and, it, and it, we could also use it to create content to help promote the restaurant opening. And... They just said yes. <laughs> and so me and Chris got to go. We ended up get, going twice, actually. Um, but every time we go to Hong Kong, Jao would just give me a big list of places I hadn't been and where he thought was were good. Um, and I'd do a bit of research. And so we would just eat endless amounts of food, go to heaps of places, um, and get really inspired to write the menu for that. And also going from a place like Manly where – uh, it's a more 
um, conservative audi- audience to somewhere like Enmore where you can just be super creative. Um, yeah, it's it's funny because they're both parts of Sydney, but both incredibly different. Do you have any stories of your t- your trips to Hong Kong and some of the experiences that you had that inspired you? Uh, my favorite place, um, and like we went to three Michelin star places, we went to Tai Pai Dongs. I always kind of ended up falling in love with the, the local Tai Pai Dongs. There's one in Shamsui Po. I can't remember the name of it. Um, they're famous for this stir-fried beef and potato dish. Um, they do it with like honey and black pepper, and it's just so delicious. I reckon the crispy skin chicken there is better than the one at Long King Heen. Um, and it's like they've got these chickens just hanging on the street and then deep-fried in like a benchtop deep-fryer. Like it shouldn't be as good as it is. But uh, to me, that's that's just the best experience. You have the most fun Um Sitting in the fancy ones where, I don't know, like every dumpling comes in its own little basket. Like it's nice and the dumplings are amazing. But to me, going to these these random diaper dongs and like I remember I went with my girlfriend at the time who could speak Cantonese. And she was, the, the table next to us was talking about how he had killed someone in Canada and he was hiding out in Hong Kong at the moment. <laughs> like... Yeah, I obviously couldn't understand them, but she could. And she was like, I think we should move. <laughs> the Howard Smith wharves in Brisbane has been a huge factor in the evolution of the culinary scene in recent years of, of Brisbane. Uh, just before the pandemic, you were executive chef at the wharves. Tell us about that role and, and helping piece together that incredible offering there. So Adam Flaskis had approached me for quite a while about going up to do it. Uh, and the first few times I spoke to him, I thought, geez, this guy is nuts. Because <laughs> he was so sure of what he wanted to do. And like he could just picture it all in his head. So it took quite a bit of convincing. But I went up and, and he walked me through it. Um, and I started to see his vision. And, and it was good to strap on for the ride. Because like it, Brisbane before, and I... It was pretty limited in the offering. Um, and so to come in and get to kind of try new things and, and it was real big push, especially with suppliers, um, just to get the quality of the produce that, that we expect in Sydney and Melbourne to get the same level of quality up there. Um, especially when a lot of the, especially the seafood comes from Queensland anyways, but a lot of it previously was going to Sydney and Melbourne. And then if they wanted it, they were buying it back. Um, and it it took a long time to to really push everyone to start to get that better supply of produce and to get stuff direct, um, and which we finally did. But it was a really good time to just push everyone and to push what the offering could be. And I think since then, uh, you've just seen the rest of Brisbane really grow. Um, and and what the offering is in a lot of places. Um, but to me, it all kind of came came down to finding the right produce. Um, like we had a guy named Michael who does Taihua Grocer out in Anala. And it's just like a little Asian fruit and veg shop, but he, he just has the coolest stuff all the time. And he's so passionate. He buys stuff from people that 
some of them grow it in their backyard. Um, but he just gets it from wherever he can get it, and he has the best stuff, and he always has new stuff to show you and tropical fruit that you've never heard or experienced. And so especially when we did Stanley, it was great because the level of the produce we were getting was exceptional. But from where we started, it, it was it was a massive change. The last couple of years have been challenging for just about everyone leading up to your role with, with Applejack. What, what, what have the last couple of years been like for you? Um, a lot of sleepless nights. <laughs> um, we, so while we were living in Brisbane, um, we decided that we would have a shot at, at, at having a family and having a, a baby. Um, and it happened probably a lot quicker than we were expecting. And so because my wife's family's from um, the eastern suburbs, we decided to move back to Sydney to be close to them. And uh, my wife's a GP, and she's kind of – she's got her final exams in a couple of months. And so doctors have it pretty tough when they're going through their training program and they can't take off much time. And I had always wanted to be a stay-at-home parent and, and give that a, a shot. Like I knew that when I became a parent – my life had always been about food and restaurants and hospitality. And I knew that I needed to take a break um, to really focus on being a parent. And so for the last two years, that's what I've done. I've, I've done bits and pieces of consulting, sold chili oil for a while, helped out random people here and there. But, but my main focus has been um, raising my son, Oscar, uh, and su- supporting my wife uh, while she's finishing her studies. What sort of impact has has that had on you, given the energy that it takes to take on the roles that you've had in hospitality and that big switch to focus on your son? It's way harder. <laughs> it's way easier running a restaurant group than it is raising a baby. That, uh, and we had a challenge in just that our son was, wasn't the best when it came to sleep. Um, I didn't really realize because I had no nothing to compare it to but I guess since uh, being a part of mother's groups and seeing it what everyone else has gone through I've, I've realized that we've we've had it pretty challenging um, but in saying that we have a lovely boy um, so so no I would say it's definitely a big change but it's also been great because I've got to see previously most of my social circle were people that worked in hospitality and that had a big knowledge of hospitality and it's been really interesting to see what I don't know a lot of other people put value in and what they find interesting and and where they want to spend their dollars when it comes to hospitality it's changed my perception a little bit tell us about your role now with five different venues and a, and a, a, a quality boutique group that's that's growing at the moment and um, what, what's exciting you about the role oh I think it's a really great group. Um, what they really do well is is creating experiences and the service and um, the beverage offer. I think what they've been lacking, and not lacking, but where there's room for improvement is in the food that, that we serve. Um, so we've got a really great culture and a really great group of people. Um, like a lot of our head chefs have started them when they were younger, um, the amount of people that have worked there for five years or more is is more than less. Um, 
And so now it's just kind of, for me, it's it's a chance to open a few people's eyes up and mentor them and really develop these great leaders that are going to take Applejack into the future. So it's, yeah, it's incredibly exciting. You've uh, built an amazing career here in Australia and taking on a huge role with a, with a growing group. Uh, what do you love about what you do? I like it all, to be honest. Uh, for me, I, the food's obviously the most fun part. That's what I like more than anything. I got good at the rest of it. So that way, what, once the numbers and the rest of it are making sense, then you can focus on the bit that's fun, which is creating food. And so I'm just spending a lot of time at the moment um, connecting our chefs with different suppliers and producers and growers and fishermen that they might not have had exposure to in the past and really um, giving them this really amazing produce and, and letting them see what they come up with and kind of helping guide them to where I think it's going to make sense from, from a, I don't know, from a business standpoint or from a execution standpoint. Um, but really it's, it's kind of showing them what else is out there and what's cool and, 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 growing those relationships with the people that grow and catch and find our food. Um, and then on the other side of it is, is it's the people it's like, I've been stuck at home for two years with a toddler who, who only now is, is finally talking back. Um, and so it's good to be able to kind of share the, the bits of knowledge that I have and experience over the years. Um, with some other people. So it's, it's fun seeing your ideas come to life and seeing them have a positive impact on people's lives or, or the business or people enjoying yum food that you've created. Well, Patrick, it's great to have you on deep in the weeds today to hear a bit of your story. Good luck with the new role. Um, keep in touch and we'll catch up again soon. Thanks. I really appreciate it. This is the deep in the weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.